This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is Election Day. Have you cast your ballot yet? We will be electing a new governor and new U.S. representatives today, along with several other races that ended in close finishes during the primary election. We wanted to know what your thoughts are, so we went out into the field this morning to talk to people about how they felt about voting in Hawaii. Way from Kaka'ako. Actually, I finished several days ago, but uh, I do want to drop the ballot in today, this morning, uh, because it's a ceremony to me. Yeah, I just think it's our duty for the good of the country, benefits of the people, and we should do what we're supposed to do. Hopefully, we find the right person to manage the city, the country, the state, and so that we can live better life yeah, in this uh, pandemic. I'm Annie from Honolulu. I do not trust the mayor. In, even, even this one is a chance, but I don't trust people. People are so unrighteous. There's so much unrighteousness, you know, and that's why I come in to vote. If something doesn't go right, I have a right to complain because I did cast a vote. You don't like it, you vote. If you like it, you vote. Yeah. And I hope they are truthful with this vote too. <laughs> I'm from Kailua, my name is Donna. It's very important for everybody who can to participate, whatever their perspective is, and make it known so that this country can truly reflect its people. I quite honestly don't necessarily trust the voting process of mailing. I think it's really important right now that with all the discrepancies and allegations about voting irregularities to vote in person, they should have more in-person voting. We'll see what happens with this election, but I have a feeling the participation on island here has gone way down. And I think there's a million folks that are registered to vote and only a fraction that are actually voting with this mail-in process, so it's not working. Roy from Kanyoi just voted. I got my ballot right before I was leaving for vacation, so I kind of had to come in. You know, you have a little bit of a say in what's going on in Hawaii, making a difference. Yeah. So I just was like, okay, I kind of forgot about it, and so I came in. Alicia Gillette from Eva Beach. You know, I think people deserve a voice. I think politics should be a representation of what the people want. And so it's important for us to come out and tell them what we want. You know, not even once a year, once every election cycle, I can show up and do my part. And so I think that's the most honest, legitimate, easiest way for us as a society to get the voice of people to put it all together and to, you know, accurately record things. Everybody knows things happen in the mail, so if I can come down and do it in person, great. I'm Leslie. I'm originally from Kansas, but I've lived in Honolulu for the past seven years. I, uh, I care about a lot of issues, uh, mostly the environment, and I feel like it's my patriotic duty to uh, have my voice heard this way. Submitted a request for a mail-in ballot, and either it didn't get to me or maybe it got lost in my junk mail. So I decided to come in person today because I didn't actually see the uh, mail-in ballot. Uh, my name is McKenna and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I, I just voted. You know, voting for me has always been very important. When I moved to Hawaii, I kind of had some questions whether I should be voting here or voting back in Minnesota. I decided to vote up ballot and vote for a governor and the Senate seat and make sure that my voice was heard on the federal level and then left the lower half of the ballot to more permanent Hawaii residents. My name's Isis. I'm from Mililani originally, but I live in Kalihikai. 
I'm gonna try to vote. I registered at the DMV, but they never sent me my license, so I have to go check. But I have two pieces of mail in case they need that, so. <laughs> I actually was on the fence about voting or not, but I just have a little bit of extra time in my day, so I decided to at least try and come make it through. Um, I'm not super, like, invested in the elections necessarily, even though, like, I work at the Capitol part-time. Um, for somebody who I really respect, uh, but I just thought, you know, if it makes a little bit of a difference, might as well try. Seth, I'm from Makiki Height. Well, the economic and all the cost of everything up is skyrocketed, you know. It's time to change, put some different people inside, you know. I'm tired of living under the Democrat rule. Everything's so high, how the hell the people can afford to live here? Tanya Hall, Honolulu, Hawaii. It's my duty as a citizen of the United States of America. And I feel that every voice matters, every vote counts. So you have to do your duty to make a difference. You have been hearing thoughts from voters around Oahu on this election day. Polls will be open until 7 p.m. tonight. If you have a question about how to cast your ballot, check out our Hawaii Voter Guide on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This morning in our studios, HPR, Sabrina Bowden joins us to talk about the voter turnout. Good morning, Sabrina. Good morning, Catherine, and happy Election Day. Yes, happy Election Day. <laughs> I voted, have you? <laughs> I am going right after this. Okay. <laughs> Until 7 p.m. is when we can vote, right? So ahead of today's election, I checked in with county clerks and election administrators on the neighbor islands. They're seeing a lower voter turnout than from last election in 2020, but seem hopeful that the midterm general election will exceed the primary, which had a close to 40% voter turnout. And Lyndon, Yoshi Lyndon Yoshioka is Kauai's election administrator, and they're looking at about a 30% voter turnout as of Monday. The most recent election in the state was actually on Kauai, which was a special election for the prosecuting attorney. That saw about a 25% voter turnout and even led to a question on the ballot about whether or not the county should have special elections for that seat. And even as an election administrator, he says it's difficult to predict uh, voter turnout because each election is so unique. Hard to say because you have different state of candidates, different environment. You know, there are so many things that are different. Uh, the only thing, you know, again, if you compare a primary versus a primary is the type of election. But I, it wouldn't be fair to compare it um, with the uh, special prosecuting attorney election because that was just a single contest. And, um, you know, that one was pretty low. I mean, it was okay, you know, as far as special elections go, it wasn't too bad, but it, yeah, you can't compare it to a special election against a primary or a general election. Too many differences, I think. And John Henricks, who is the Hawaii Island County Clerk, doesn't try to dissect voter turnout. He's more concerned with the smooth sailing operations of an election. I think that sometimes is kind of a a question that has like um, nuances to it that we don't really play into how we operate here. You know, like as far as why people are voting or they're not voting, I have no idea. 
with people choose to vote or don't vote, it's so personal. So I think that's a totally reasonable question to ask. I just don't know who to ask that question to. Honestly, if you if you to get a sense, you'd have to ask people who voted why they voted and people who didn't vote why they didn't vote. And right now on Maui, about 28,000 of around 99,000 ballots have come back. So that's about a 28% voter turnout so far. And if you remember during the primary in August, Maui experienced some long lines after polls closed at 7 p.m. that Saturday night. (laughs) Yes, so that kind of held up the state in releasing results. And while officials can't predict how many people will come out today to vote, between the primary and general elections, uh, they problem solved a little bit. So one of the major improvements they've made was enlarging the staff for faster check-in at the Wailuku Voting Service Center. And they also added more poll booths and machines. Um, Maui County Deputy Clerk James Kroger says that they expanded the number of places where people could vote inside the center for more efficiency. We've made improvements to our operations down at the Voter Service Center to hopefully help people, you know, get voting faster. But at the same time, you know, for the general election, we're generally expecting a larger turnout. So, you know, it's possible that we'll still have a line at the end of the day. But we do want to assure people that if they make it to our voter service center by 7 o'clock p.m. and they're in line, we're going to help everybody in line. And if you still have your ballot, you have until 7 p.m. tonight to get into the physical custody of your local elections division. That means you want to drop it off at a place of deposit or go directly to a voter service center to drop it off. Mailing it will almost guarantee that your ballot will not be received in time. And if you already signed up up for it, Election Chief Scott Nago says the ballot track system is fully operational on all the islands. Track your ballot uh, at... On our website, you can sign up for ballot notifications, either uh, via text, email, or voice. Uh, there it will tell you when your ballot has been received, uh, processed, and accepted for counting. And you can download your virtual I Voted sticker there, too. And when we chatted with Scott yesterday, I know he had said that uh, uh, the number of voters who are using that tracking system this, this, uh, this time is up from the primary. So I think mm-hmm. it's just a matter of, I think, voters getting used to doing it this way doing the mail-in system Mm -hmm. yeah and even when i was at the state capitol yesterday for the ballot processing uh the volunteers people who have been there 20 years or people who have just started up this past year you know the process is really easy for them to sort of adapt to yeah and i i am one of those that like to go to the polling place on uh, election day Mm -hmm. this year i actually uh, you know went down and uh, to Honolulu Hale and, and dropped it off and used the drive-through. Uh, so that was really easy. There was no line and just sailed right through, stuck it in the box and was on my way. Yeah, and even if you are in that drive-through line at 7 p.m., you will still be able to drop off your ballot as well. Yeah, so, um, well, good luck when you go down. Thank <laughs> to, you. Uh, I hope there's no to line. Drop, <laughs> to drop your ballot in. Well, it, like I said, it's always interesting to see because you've got the candidates out, you know, along the mm-hmm. side of the road. and uh, There's free parking yes. downtown to uh, by the Voter Services Center. So Right. So if people are out there and have not cast their vote yet, please do before 7. And uh, I think you can still register to vote at, the, at those centers if you go down in person mm-hmm. and hopefully it it goes smoothly and we get those returns in early hopefully all right well thank you so much sabrina thank you Catherine. we've been talking to hpr sabrina bowden uh for all the election information head to our website hawaiipublicradio.org
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of Olympians with ties to Hawaii. Brian Clay is an American decathlete who has competed under the Stars and Stripes at the highest level. Clay was born in Austin, Texas, but raised in the Hawaiian Islands. He's a son of a Japanese immigrant mother and an African-American father. He participated in track and field during his high school days and at Azusa Pacific University in California. In 2004, he competed in the decathlon at the Olympics in Athens, Greece, where he won a silver medal. A year later, he finished first at the World Championships in Athletics, winning a gold medal. Four years later, he won gold at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. But before he was collecting medals at world competitions, he was a standout track and field athlete on Oahu. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know which Hawaii High School Olympic gold medalist Brian Clay attended? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareedHawaii.com. ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is one of the most common childhood disorders. It affects 6% of Hawaii's children. They may have problems with focusing and impulsive behavior. And while it is often diagnosed in boys, it also affects girls. Uh, Sungalina Lee is the principal of the Assets School. She began working with neurodiverse youth because she found them bright, quirky, and that she found her own interests could help meet their needs. Lee spoke with the conversation Stephanie Hahn about the challenges faced by girls with ADHD, why they remain undiagnosed, and how we might support them. I was wondering firstly, because there's definitions, ADHD, ADD, if you might be able to define ADHD. According to the DSM-5, there are three different types of ADHD. DSM is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. People with ADHD show a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity, um, impulsivity that interferes with their function or development. So there is the predominantly inattentive presentation or the hyperactive, hyperactive impulsive presentation or a combined presentation. And how does this exhibit in girls that is different from 
boys Mm. because I'm aware that ADHD is often affiliated and thought to be something more that boys have to deal with and cope with and you don't hear much about girls with ADHD. Yeah so with that let me talk more about the inattention presentation of ADHD which is that this individual for boys or girls they often fail to Um, give close attention to details, or they're the type that makes careless mistakes in schoolwork. They have trouble holding attention on task or play activities. They don't seem to listen when spoken spoken to directly. They often don't follow through with instructions. They're the type of student that I hear from from parents or teachers that, like, they did their homework. They just didn't turn it in. It got lost from home to school. Anything that takes sort of organization, task, or activities, or time management, they get lost in that. The other type, the hyperactivity and the impulsivity that we had talked about, they're the ones that are sort of more in your face or what we think about with ADHD type of profile. They're the ones that are fidgety. They're impulsive. It's like they're driven um, by a motor and sort of the inattentive type, that's harder to know and to play out. And so for this type of individual, they're doing a lot of heavy lifting to sort of navigate their world, and it's harder to notice that it's inattention or ADHD because the trickiness of this type of ADHD is that they are consistently inconsistent. So that sometimes they're hyper focused or they can perform those tasks so you know that in a sense like I will hear from parents like I know she can do it she just tries she just doesn't or she doesn't care and that's what it can look like when in fact it's because that's part of the disorder that's part of their ADHD the fact that they're so inconsistent Mm -hmm. and so I think for girls who often exhibit this type of ADHD it's, it's tricky to even identify that it's ADHD. Why does this diagnosis elude girls? I mean, what kind of gender role assumption mm-hmm. plays into the fact that girls are not recognized as having ADHD, so their needs might not be met in an academic or social environment? Well, my experience and the information that shows with girls with ADHD that often go undiagnosed especially with that inattentive type, is that one is that there's no single way that we diagnose ADHD. That diagnosis is made by mental health professionals like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a pediatrician. And like I had mentioned, oftentimes parents and teachers provide information regarding a child's behavior within different settings like home or school or with peers that level of inattention sometimes is elusive because if they're playing with friends, sometimes you can't see that they're not paying attention. If they are missing certain details in their schoolwork, it's hard to know that it's the inattention versus maybe just careless errors or they didn't really care about the activity. I also think that most of the research that was, I think, devoted to ADHD was more, or acknowledging ADHD was more of the impulsive in your face type. It's hard to ignore. So that's gonna be addressed uh, more quickly by teachers, or they're gonna flag those types of behaviors with parents that really wears on the people around them. 
but the inattentive type, there's more heavy lifting happening internally. So you have girls, let's say, with ADHD. Mm-hmm. They might, from what I read, exhibit low self-esteem. They might be kind of worry warts, worrying. There's ideas of perfectionism. And might this behavior also be a reaction to societal gender-based discrimination in terms of expectation? How do we discern? In other words, there are such intense demands placed upon young girls to behave, to be good, to be compliant. How does this play into potentially how we're seeing girls who have ADHD? That's an excellent point. I think there's a couple of things with that. One is oftentimes, especially when we are not diagnosing ADHD with anyone, but especially girls, is that as it's not diagnosed, there's a cost to that, meaning that they are doing a lot of internal heavy lifting. There's a lot of uh, coping, masking skills being developed. Those are exhausting. It can feel normal for them, and then with that, anxiety or depression can play out because of the fact that their needs are not being taken care of. Their world is not designed for them. There's a lot of misunderstandings of who they are. Also is that there is a higher level of comorbidity with ADHD and depression and anxiety. So there's sort of a chicken and egg. Internalizing a lot of these inattention or these behaviors like the perfectionism, the worrying, That feels in some ways sort of like normal of being a girl. They are taking care of the situation at a cost to themselves. Um, And I do think that it underscores, not just with ADHD, but with a lot of different diagnoses, that females are often marginalized with how they are addressed with their needs with these diagnoses and then also the treatment. ADHD is, is not really inconveniencing others. And one of the ways we diagnose ADHD is by the adults, like the teachers and the parents who are saying, this is really hard. But if that child has a lot of masking or coping skills, the inattention is not plaguing them. It's just costing them a lot. So in other words, like daydreaming, yes. is that what you're saying? Yes. You know, not following through um, the organization. There's a lot of things that for them feels really tricky. They know what they need to do. That's one of the qualities of ADHD. It's not a lack of knowledge or skill, it's a lack of performance. It's knowing when to access those skills, knowing what you need to do, but knowing when to do it. Are there any particular strengths or gifts that girls might have? who do have ADHD? I would say absolutely. One thing about ADHD is that it is always looking for projects and engagement and there's a novelty for their experience. And so I think that these girls, they are able to look in a situation that could be really intimidating and and they are looking for what are the experiences here that I can really thrive? But when you give them this experience where there's a lot of nutrients, but it could be really jarring for, I think, a different type of profile, 
they'll find their richness. They sort of deep dive, and they are really experts in places that are of interest to them. What kind of steps can teachers or families or schools take to support girls with ADHD? Is there something systemic that can be addressed within a school structure? Is there something that can be done in the home to support and foster these girls? For these girls, where if what I'm saying about especially them not following through, through with tasks, them with their time management skills being challenging, that we don't think of it as a lack of will, but more of a lack of skill. Assume that your daughter is trying her best, and then stay curious about what may be playing out for her, and really talking with sort of their internal landscape of figuring out like where where does it get tough for you? Where is this hard? Also being curious about when are things successful for them? When are they able to complete these tasks? Because I think too is that especially younger girls, they're not gonna be able to identify some of their struggles. And so we have to really sort of deep dive and and figure it out, sort of be like a Sherlock Holmes. But I think one is just to know that this this does play out. I hear from a lot of parents that will say, in my day, ADHD was not so prominent. I feel like that that is a diagnosis that's often overdiagnosed. That could be true in one way, but the other truth is that girls, especially with ADHD, are undiagnosed, and that's a truth. This can be a child's experience, and then also knowing that the longer it takes for them to get diagnosed and treated, there is a cost. Self-esteem, confidence, there is more of a three times likelihood of an eating disorder with girls with ADHD. We're still trying to figure out, is it because of the fact that ADHD, some of the qualities would land with with eating disorders? Or is it because of the fact that that's where they feel a lot of control is what they can eat? How would ADHD then play out in a girl's social life? They're social, they want that connection. But to maintain those friendships, Sometimes it's hard because of the fact that, sort of what John Gottman says about when we are in relationship, when we are making a connection, it's sort of like you throw a ball to the person that you're connecting with, they throw the ball back, back and forth, and the more we throw the ball, the more rapport, relationship, trust is being built. But if I am, for my own sort of qualities of ADHD, able to throw that ball back, but sometimes something else captures my attention. I'm no longer engaged. I, I no longer, my the goals and my behaviors no longer line up. That feels tricky for other people. Now they feel like I'm being an inconsistent friend. So that does cost the person with ADHD. And I think when we go back with ADHD and girls is that they're often overlooked. They have to fit they have to fit to the environment. But what can we do to adjust the environment so that they could still learn and still engage? So I think that that is where I would want to start the conversation. 
One is identifying these students, but number two, even more so, is now what do we do with that information? That was Asset School Principal Sungalina Lee speaking with the conversation Stephanie Hahn on how ADHD may show up in girls. They also discussed why it's important for families to address the needs of their daughters and for schools to understand the costs of the failure to diagnose this condition in girls. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with help from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, explores the human connection to nature. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lindsay Andriotti, founder of The Kindness Club. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about kindness, the positive virus we all want to catch. Be there. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. For today's Reality Check, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about affordable housing on Lanai. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So your headline is that this is what, the first affordable housing project in 30 years? That's crazy. It is. It's crazy. And as a consequence of that, um, you know, it's very common for people who are residents of that island to stack up together in homes, multi-generational living, for example, or even living with a family outside of your relatives just to kind of make sure everybody has a place to live. There's a, you know, there's a housing stock shortage and there's certainly an affordable housing stock shortage. And we should point out that, gosh, over 30 years, I mean, the island was mostly owned by uh, David Murdoch before and then he sold it to uh, a tech billionaire, Larry Ellison. Exactly. So this development, it's, uh, it's going to be 150 units. 51% of them are going to be affordable units, and the others will be market rate. You know, they're all rentals, and uh, they are really, it's really geared at shoring up the island's workforce shortage. Um, you know, a big problem there is that uh, some jobs, you know, need, need off-island workers. Uh, it's such a small resident pool there. There are, you know, jobs like dentists and, and other things where you really need to pull people from other islands. And it's really hard to hire people to fill those positions when there's nowhere for them to live. Yeah, and the two hotels there, those are, you know, luxury resorts. Uh, and you need workers <laughs> to staff, you know, those hotels and, and to build, uh, you know, projects over there. Exactly. Some of those hotel workers actually live at the luxury hotel because there isn't anywhere for them to live. Um, you know, Larry Ellison, the, the landlord who owns most of the island, has 
lots of construction plans and, and those construction workers, you know, fly over. And so uh, this development aims to, to help with that issue, both when it comes to folks coming to the island from, from other islands, from outside, and when it comes to the resident population as well. Right. I mean, we, we do have, you know, construction workers that bop around from island to island, but if you need them, you know, there during the week, they need some place to stay. Exactly. And then, you know, uh, as far as uh, uh, these homes, I mean, uh, I, I thought it interesting that they are setting aside some of those units for teachers. Yes. So as a condition, um, you know, of, of the permitting process, the Maui County Council um, set a stipulation and it's requiring Pulama Lanai, the Larry Ellison's management company that's, that's uh, developing this project. They're requiring the company to reserve 10 affordable units for teachers. Um, you know, that is, of course, aimed at trying to correct a longstanding teacher shortage. Uh, things got so bad that in 2020, the Department of Education actually sent two officials to the Philippines to recruit teachers there. Um, so, you know, housing is a key problem that's, that's preventing, um, you know, teachers from, from coming to the island. So are these units mainly those uh, for the folks that are just working there? I mean, you know, what about those with, like, families? Yeah, so, you know, one one issue that's come up is, well, first of all, all of these units are furnished down to the art on the walls. Um, the furnishings, you know, in my opinion, look beautiful. Um, three 85-inch televisions, I mean, they're really well-equipped. Um, but there's two layouts. They're all two-bedroom apartments, excuse me, homes. And, uh, you know, you can either get two king beds or a king bed and two twin beds. So one criticism from residents is, well, what if I need a baby crib? Um, and, you know, they come furnished how they come furnished. So there are some concerns that these aren't really geared toward families. Yeah, it's really interesting. But, you know, the need is great over there. And so uh, any housing at this point um, would be a good thing, though. Yeah, it's being built as one step towards solving the housing crisis. That it's not going to solve every everything, but it's definitely a step in the right direction, I think. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Backyard Quiz, we asked you if you knew which Hawaii High School Olympic gold medalist Brian Clay attended. Clay was born in Texas, but was a standout track and field star in the Aloha State. After high school, he competed in the decathlon for Azusa Pacific University in California. He won his first medal at a global competition in 2004 when he took silver at the World Indoor Championships and the Summer Olympics. But he's most notable for winning a gold medal in the decathlon at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The Olympics, however, aren't the only stage he has shined on. Uh, Clay won a gold medal in the uh, heptathlon at the 2008 and 2010 World 
Athletics Indoor Championships. In March of 2013, he was inducted into the Azusa uh, Pacific Hall of Fame. But before he was competing at the Olympics and Track and World Championships, he was running track for one of Oahu's high schools. If you're an avid Olympics fan or a former track and field athlete, you probably know Brian Clay attended James B. Castle High School in Kaneohe. Lots of people called on this one. Our winner today with the fastest fingers, Kavika from Kaneohe. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, sh- uh, send it to Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from Highway Inn Hawaiian Food, celebrating 75 years. Located in Kaka'ako, Waipahu, and Bishop Museum, also shipping package dishes to the continental U.S. Group reservations at myhighwayin.com. Are you interested in working in radio? HPR has part-time openings in its operations department. You'll be part of the dedicated team that puts HPR's programs on the air and keeps it humming 24-7. Responsibilities include preparing shows for air, working in our on-air control rooms, and ensuring compliance with broadcast standards. If this is music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort, celebrating Thanksgiving. Chef Mizukami's to-go meal features fresh turkey and an array of sides, including a family recipe. Details and availability at kahalaresort.com. its 50th anniversary, the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College program decided to step outside its comfort zone with its very first gallery exhibit. It put out the call for artists at the end of July. And artists uh, Shanae Tam, Michelle Schwangel, Regala, and Bashur were selected from a pool of 40 applicants. The three wasted no time getting down to work, partnering with researchers in the field to observe and transform concepts of ocean conservation into unique piece, uh, pieces of art. The result is the Sci Art Gallery exhibit titled Resiliency, that's S-E-A, which opened at the Arts of Mark's Garage last Friday. Uh, Schwengel, Regala, and Tam joined the conversation. Savannah Harriman-Pote in the studio this morning, along with Sea Grant exhibit organizer Beth Lentz. Here's Lentz. Each of these artists, with Michelle, Boz, and Sinead, they all have very different approaches, and they're hugely impactful in their own way and they are dynamic and they fill in the space and they really do strike the audience that comes into their space and that was completely felt during the application review process. Um, their, Their voice in their cover letters were phenomenal and the passion was there and the potential um, even if I might not have worked with each one of them individually yet Um, I felt their drive and their excitement, enthusiasm, and commitment to um, the same tenets and the same values that our program has with really trying to communicate and connect with our communities and really help bolster and support. Um, So those those really were striking to us. Um, We had had a great application pool. It was highly competitive, but these three were – top tiered and it made the process actually very easy and um, when I met with them I was so nervous I didn't know how they would 
um, collaborate with one another or work well together. And it was almost seamless. At least that's what it seemed like to me. And um, in this process, I'm always nervous, like how things will get implemented and how things will hit with the audience um, during. And I couldn't have expected anything better. I had no idea where things were going to go. And um, I couldn't have asked for a, a more beautiful collaboration with these three talented artists. There are three artists who are participating in this exhibit at Mart's Garage. And so I was hoping that the artists present and Beth as well as the organizer could talk about one of the pieces of art that they really appreciate in the exhibit that is not their own work. So if we could start with you, Michelle. Oh, um, I think the, the one that was a surprise in our lineup that I didn't immediately expect to see there was the, the participatory project that Boz put together. There are all of these images that either she has taken or she's grabbed from Sea Grant site or some other scenes that illustrate uh, the, the vista at Hanama Bay that showcase things under the, under the surface of the water. And then this panel is put forth in the very far back section of Mark's Garage with the intention that people can use that as a, as a, as a platform to write their own messages on to write their own stories about, about their relationship to marine systems, to the, the outdoor environment in Hawaii, things like that. So I like that there's a chance for people to see other people's reactions, for people to share their voices. And, and I think that sort of community participatory thing is something that is, is really meaningful, especially in this time when we're getting back together after, after all of this isolation through COVID. And Shanae, was there a work that surprised you or that you were really excited to see as part of the lineup? I think I would agree with Michelle with having that collaboration piece in the back with the audience because also it was very like approachable um, and not just like something you don't touch or you don't you just look at. So it was very tactile too for like kids and all ages to kind of relate to and jump in. Mm. And Beth, as someone who helped organize, it's hard for me to pick one. I think what I'm most impressed with is just as a whole how beautiful the space is and how interwoven their work is. And you come in and there's just so many different elements, there's so many different mediums, and there's so many different colors that actually complement each other so well, and it's a very inviting and warm space. I had the opportunity to see the exhibit yesterday as well, and, and in addition to the interweaving aspect of it, many of the pieces, Michelle, I'm thinking of your work in particular, but also Ba's work, have more than one dimension. And so you can see see the shadows that the pieces create as well. And, and that gives you kind of a sense of the different dimensions you get in ocean structures in a reef, for instance. Are there other elements like that that you particularly wanted to bring into your work? Some Some aspect of just the beauty of the ocean that you wanted to translate in your particular medium. Can we start with Michelle and then go to Shanae? I'd say that part of my directive was to illustrate or demonstrate or showcase things that aren't so readily visible when you're doing a, a cursory glance at a marine system. Things like the, the vast diversity of Limu. Limu was my focus. And so I was able to showcase a, a huge range of species. and talk about ways that Limu is utilized in commercial applications. And, and so those things aren't so present in, our, in, in many of our daily lives nowadays. And so I wanted to, to address those points 
through the works that I put forth. And and the actual materials that you chose, how did that help to represent those concepts? I've been trying to utilize more secondhand materials in my art practice for the past few years. I was able to utilize some wire that's used in marine research, but I've used it to indicate depth of where certain species of limu are, are naturally found. Um, I utilized some some metal screens that were cast off from a local business, but I used them in a way that was a, a reference to doing marine biodiversity surveys, but then also it's a, it's a structure to be able to suspend the species in space. Mm. Um, and then I think the thing you see initially when you come into the gallery is this yarn that's hanging from the ceiling, um, saturated in a vat of three different kinds of seaweed, and that yarn itself is seaweed yarn. So I, I love being able to talk about these things that frankly, I didn't even know about as a fiber artist until only only recently. Shanae, I want to talk a little bit about your work. What particular aspect of the ocean environment were you trying to capture through the mediums you chose and the particular subjects you chose? Working with the time constraint of just like a month or month and a half, <laughs> um, I decided to just go for painting, um, just fall back on what I know and I'm true to you, I guess. And I wanted to create depth using layers. So I'd pour acrylic and water over and over and over again to create layers and take away and re-pour and sand off things to create that depth that the ocean has, as well as all of its creatures and sort of playing off of that interconnectivity. Like if I left something transparent, the background would shine through. Or if I took something away and it was half there, then only it was partial. And I feel that that touches upon the reciprocal relationship of life and death and life flourishing, but with the cost of like, it ate something and just that continue, um, continuous relationship, the multi-trophic, um, interconnectivity. So um, in many ways, it was very meditative in a sense where those layers represent um, those different intertidal zones and being in the water, being in a space that has you absorbed in different ways and where your attention is not always focused on one thing. It's everything as a whole. Mm. All of the pieces are so detailed that I think the more time you spend with them, the more you get to observe and appreciate. And this is a exhibit that is representing sci art. I want to talk a little bit more about that term, and I don't want to say that science and art fall on a binary, but when you think about trying to communicate data to an audience and trying to create visuals that are engaging, how does the work that is present in this exhibit go one step further than what you might find, for instance, as part of a report? Beth, can we start with you? Yes. I, I agree that science and art are both exploration of, of the experience we are all having together. And while I think there's um, both have their merits individually and we have been accustomed to that binary, and we, as we dig in deeper, we know that is definitely not true. Um, science can provide the repetitive, uh, repeatable data sets that we can have to help describe whereas art just takes it into a completely different way that can resonate on so many different senses and can can hit with us and tell stories in such a creative, passionate way, 
whereas in science, it's typically objective. And, and so it can come off as very dry. But the process of science is actually very creative. And it takes a lot of thought. And it takes a lot of uh, time and observation and critical thinking. And there's sa- similar process- processes um, between those two fields. And it's a shame that they have become disparate over time. And so by bringing the science and art together, where you have scientific illustrators or, or artists who come from a Fisher's family, like we're all connected. And I, I wanna say that the art is not necessarily utilized to extend the science. I think what's really fascinating is bringing these artists to our different sites with Hawaii Sea Grant, Hanauma Bay, at Waikalua Local Ia, where we have some research going on, Waile'e, um, and then our partnerships with um, Kua Aina Ulu Aomo uh, Kua is that these are all ways that we have inspired their own artwork and to inform the work that they're doing. And you said this is the very first exhibit of this kind that Sea Grant has put on. What is the organization thinking about now that they've pulled this off that they might want to do in the future encouraging that same sort of interweaving of concepts of science and art? Uh, Yeah, so since Friday in our opening night at Arts at Mark's Garage, um, I've already had people come up about how often do you want to do this? Every month? And I was like, we're definitely not doing that every month. Um, So it would be really exciting for us to do this every year and do different variants of this, whether it's engaging youth or engaging uh, students that we work with or the, the researchers at UH to engage that artistic creative side to showcase that. Um, to do a call for art for specific themes and really message whether it's coastal hazard issues, um, identifying the things that really do bolster up our resiliency on the islands. Mm. So there's a variety of potential and it's very exciting. Um, So reach out to Sea Grant if you have some ideas, happy to take them. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you all so much for coming down into the studio. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate Uh yours. Thank you. That was UHC Grant Program's Beth Lentz speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the new Sci Art exhibit, Resiliency with the SCA. The exhibit features ocean science inspired art from Shanae Tam and Michelle Schwangel Regala, who also joined us in the studio. The exhibit will be featured at the Arts of Mark's Garage until November 25th with science talks, science talks throughout the month. You can find out more at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that's a wrap for our show. Tomorrow, we look at election results and turn the stone over and over. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.